ЧВК Вагнер, славное войско, каждый боец Hello and welcome to Geopolitics Decanted by Silverado. My name's Patrick Gray. And you might be thinking, hey, you're not Dmitry Alperovich. And of course, you would be absolutely right. But don't worry, I'm just here as a guest host with Dmitry so that he can be the one answering questions for a change uh, instead of asking them. Now, since this podcast started, I've been helping Dimitri out behind the scenes with things like research and production, uh, and some of you might know me from my own podcast, Risky Business, uh, which is a very, very niche cybersecurity podcast that 90% of you would probably find extremely boring. Uh, but I'm thrilled to be behind the mic today to host this edition of Geopolitics Decanted, uh, which is a podcast that, like you, I really enjoy listening to. Uh, what you heard at the intro there were two clips of the absolute chaos in Rostov-on-Don. Uh, locals jeering the returning police force and a Wagner fighter shooting into the sky while the crowds cheered him on. And uh, yeah, as for that music, that is Wagner's awful, awful uh, self-written theme song, uh, which of course continues this podcast's long tradition of using absolutely awful intro music. So look, let's get right into it now. And Dimitri, you are a Russia expert. What on earth just happened? Well, first of all, Patrick, thank you so much for helping me start this podcast helping me edit it, helping me with the selection of guests and topics. You've been just absolutely instrumental in getting this going and really appreciate you willing to sit in the guest host chair for a change and have a chat with me on this issue. Yeah, I've been uh, getting very little sleep over the last uh, 72 hours watching this very closely. And I think that a lot of the takes on this are not quite correct. First of all, this is not a coup. Right? And I've actually made some mistakes of using that word I, I shouldn't have. It's really a mutiny. And the mutiny was not about taking power. A lot of people assume that this was the type of thing that you'd see where a military colonel in the Middle East or somewhere else is trying to take power away from a dictator and become the dictator himself. That was not Prigozhin's goal here. And in fact, I think he was probably quite surprised about how far he was going to get and did not have a plan for taking Moscow, to taking the Kremlin, and uh, did not uh, think it through really to, to the very end because he thought that there would be negotiation long before he would reach Moscow. Now, what was his ultimate goal? I think all of this, and we're starting to get some inklings and some reporting about this from the intel community, leaking this to the journalist, a terrific Washington Post story that came out on Saturday about this. But I've been thinking this for quite some time that the uh, Shoigu order from June 10th is really pivotal to this. That order said that all private military companies, including, of course, the most prominent one, Wagner, are effectively going to be dismantled as of July 1st, and everyone that wants to continue fighting in Ukraine has to sign on with the Ministry of Defense and become a Russian combat volunteer in the army. And not only was Prigozhin completely opposed to that, to him, this was the loss of his business, right? Wagner was incredibly lucrative business. He was siphoning off a lot of money from the Russian military because of Wagner. And it's also become a source of his power, not just power militarily with lots of weapons and lots of guys under his control, but power politically where he had presented himself as a populist over the last nine months or so, 
showing that he's the one that is who is fighting for Russia, who is actually trying to win some battles, in the case of at least Bakhmut, and Solidar was able to actually capture those cities, mostly by destroying them, of course. And that's what it was about. I think he saw this looming deadline of July 1st when he was going to lose power. In particular, he saw Putin reaffirm Shoigu's order in that meeting with mill bloggers a few weeks ago, where he had basically said that, yes, of course, everyone is going to be signing on with the Ministry of Defense. And he felt like he had to make a move, right, to save his business. And this is something that, as I posted on Twitter, I think everyone in Silicon Valley understands, and every VC would uh, consider him a perfect candidate for a founder, someone who is putting his life... He's committed to the grind. Yes, committed to the grind, (laughs) putting his life and freedom behind saving of his business. And, of course, it's not just his business. It is a source of his power, as I mentioned. Well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, his power because, you know, the idea of Prigozhin having political power, that's very new because the perception out there is that he's Putin's pet and he doesn't have much cover from political patrons, that he's basically a, a nobody. Yeah, so I think this weekend changed everything for him, as I'm sure we'll talk about. But uh, he certainly had political patronage. There's no way he could have started Wagner without it. There's no way he could have started the Troll Factory in St. Petersburg that was so prominent over the last few years. I actually don't think that he and Putin are close. They've certainly met a number of times. Putin, by the way, had given him a medal, Hero of Russia medal, which he still hasn't revoked, surprisingly enough. But I actually think that there were others from the St. Petersburg clique that uh, Putin had brought to the Kremlin they're supporting of him. And GRU in particular is the one where he has built most significant rela- relationships. And General Alexeyev, who featured prominently in that sit-down, remarkable sit-down in Rostov with Prigozhin, was one of those people that had supported Wagner and Prigozhin from the start. But he's had an amazing career, right? It, it's worth taking a moment to just talk about his history because he started out as a convict, as an 18-year-old that was doing burglaries in St. Petersburg got arrested, sort of got the slap on the wrist originally, then continued and then got convicted and sent to prison for 10 years, finally getting out in 1990 in in sort of general amnesties that were taking place at the time with the Soviet Union coming to an end, and started a number of businesses, a hot dog stand, then became a a more prominent restaurateur in St. Petersburg, opening up more fancy restaurants. And that's where people understand he may have met Putin, where Putin is rumored to have done birthday parties, his birthday parties in his restaurants, and gotten to know him a little bit. And then over time, as Putin had become president of Russia and moved along with many people from St. Petersburg into the echelon of power in Russia, Prigozhin leveraged that to start getting more lucrative contracts, initially uh, doing catering supplies for the Russian schools for lunches and, and then doing meal supplies for the Russian military. And then in the early 2010s, as Russia was looking at what was taking place in the world, as they were paying attention to the Arab Spring in particular, and fearing this wave of color revolutions that were taking place, obviously some had already taken place in Georgia and in Ukraine earlier that they were very concerned about since it's it's their backyard as they think of it, they were assuming in the conspiratorial way that Russians tend to think, particularly Putin, that this is all orchestrated by the CIA, that the CIA was orchestrating the revolution in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere. And that's where you had that famous speech, uh, not actually speech, but a, a famous article that Gerasimov had written in an influential military journal talking about hybrid war 
and the, the Gerasim of Doctrine, which is a misnomer, of course, because it wasn't written as a doctrine, came about where he was actually describing what he thought the United States was doing, which was starting all these color revolutions, using hybrid warfare with Twitter, most famously being said to have contributed to the Egyptian revolution, although I'm very doubtful that it had that much of an effect. And also talking about private military companies, including Blackwater, which, as you may recall at the time, was highly prominent in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there were concerns that, you know, the United States was starting paramilitary companies that would be used to change regimes, concerns, I'm, I'm saying, in Russia. And that's when the Russian military said, hey, we might want our own. And Prigozhin, who was already had contractual relationship with them, said, I can do it, right? And that's where you had the emergence of Wagner that was used in various places in Africa for deniable operations, then was used in Ukraine in 2014, and then later Syria and uh, Libya. And of course, in 2022, they were absolutely pivotal because when the Russians ran out of offensive potential after the failure of the offensive in Kiev, and they were concerned that they had no manpower before the mobilization in the fall. Prigozhin is the one that said, I can step in with my guys, bring them back from Syria, bring them back from Africa, and I can continue executing the offensive in Donbass while you guys rebuild the army. And he did that. And that was pivotal. And of course, then he continued the fighting in Bakhmut as part of the overall counteroffensive and ultimately at very high cost was able to capture Bakhmut. So it's, it's all high fives and backslaps at this point, right? Like everything you've just described, it's great, okay? So what went wrong? What went wrong is that you've had this simmering confrontation between Shoigu and Gerasimov and Prigozhin as Prigozhin became more and more prominent, as he had more and more success, and as he started to uh, conflict with them, started to browbeat them about their strategies, about their casualty rates, about the lack of ammunition that he was getting. And this got worse and worse over time and got really, really bad in the last few months, as everyone remembers the uh, shouting videos of him in front of dead bodies and so forth. And Putin did not want to interfere. He thought that this was none of his business. You know, the, the typical divide and rule strategy that he has employed for years would continue working well. Of course, everyone could see that this is be becoming very unhealthy for the Russian system, that this can't keep going. And there's one thing that you can say about Defense Minister Shoigu. He may be a terrible military strategist. He doesn't have a military background. He was uh, famously in charge of emergency response ministry for a couple of decades before he became the defense minister. But he knows how to fight in a bureaucracy. He's a master at that. In fact, he's the ultimate survivor. He actually got his first cabinet post in the Russian government in 1991 under Yeltsin, under numerous prime ministers that Yeltsin had cycled through. Then under Putin and his numerous prime ministers, he had continued to survive and hang on, and then ultimately rising to the position of the defense minister. So this was the guy that was always going to be a really, really tough competitor for Prigozhin. And uh, Shoigu not only tried to starve him of ammunition, perhaps thinking that he would fail as a result in, in his attack on Bakhmut, but also because I think he probably feared arming Wagner too much and, and having Wagner become a significant threat, which, of course, was 
prophetic, and and Wagner did emerge as such. Well, you, um, you've you've uh, sent me a video earlier from Wargonzo where they were interviewing uh, Prigozhin and saying, "Oh, you know, we're hearing maybe they're they're withholding ammo because they don't want you, you know, stockpiling it all and then marching to Moscow." And you know, Prigozhin sitting there saying, "Ha ha ha! How preposterous!" Mm-mm. Well, it, it was actually an amazing video that, that I dug up. I remember that interview. It was on April 29th. Uh, it was an hour-long interview with Wargonzo. And as you say, Wargonzo, this military blogger, was saying, the reason you're not getting ammunition, I hear, in the Kremlin is because they're concerned you're getting too powerful, you have too many political ambitions, and we don't want you to become too strong because who knows? You might march on Moscow, take the Kremlin, seize power in Russia. And Prigozhin almost like looks shocked and says, march on Moscow? Well, that's an interesting thought. I haven't really thought about that. (laughs) That was April 29th. So he had two months to think about it. And you see the results. A seed was planted. Okay, so earlier on, you were talking about how it didn't really feel like he had concrete a concrete goal in mind as he began this like so called march for justice towards uh, towards Moscow. Was he the dog who almost caught the car was it sounds like from what you were saying, things just kind of got out of hand for him. Well, I, I, did, I do think he had a goal in mind. And by the way, we'll get to this later, but I think he may have actually accomplished that goal. The goal was to preserve Wagner. Yes, it would have been nice to replace Shoigu and Gerasimov, but at the end of the day, the thing that he cares most about is to make sure that Wagner is preserved under his command. He continues to receive money and arms for Wagner, and he uh, continues to use Wagner both as a source of enrichment as well as a source of his power, including potentially political power down the road. So he thought that he could pressure the military, and he thought that Putin would continue to stay out of it, that he could roll into Rostov, start marching towards Moscow, and he could get his way, that he would scare these guys, Gerasimov and Shoigu, shock them, and they would rescind the order from June 10th, and he would keep Wagner. And initially, things went his way, right? He rolled into Rostov, and it was remarkable. You had the military there, in the Southern Military District headquarters, literally the nerve center for running the war in Ukraine. It's sort of analogous analogous to CENTCOM uh, during the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, getting occupied by a mercenary force. That's what it was. And they just rolled in without firing a shot and took it over. And the Russian MPs that were there, the military, the Rosguardia, the National Guard units did nothing. That was what was so surprising to me is not only did they not fight, but they didn't surrender, they didn't flee, they didn't switch sides, they just stood around there and let Wagner roll into the building, and they also captured the FSB, local FSB building and, and the city administration. And then you had this remarkable video of the deputy minister of the Russian MOD and the deputy head of GRU, Alexeyev, who had worked with Gerasim for many years, sitting down with him, with Prigozhin basically dictating the terms, saying, I want to meet with Gerasimov and Shoigu. I want to get him replace, get them replaced. And Alex Safe actually responding with a smile, you can have them, which is also remarkable, right? This is a military general that is, you know, they're his superiors. And essentially no one opposing him. And it was quite clear to me that no one had orders. No one knew what to do. And it took 13 hours from the point when Prigozhin announced that he was going to have this mutiny because 
you know, we still don't know if this actually took place, but theoretically there was some strike on his camp in Ukraine. Well, that's that's what was apparently the trigger for all of this was a missile attack on a Wagner encampment somewhere in Ukraine, right? And and it was not a terribly convincing video that Prigozhin posted on that. No, he said there were hundreds of people that died. There was no corpses that could be seen. There were a couple of fires in the distance. It was unclear that anything actually happened. And the thing that makes me very suspicious about all of this is that this was clearly a highly organized assault. You don't just have you know, a major missile attack on a camp and suddenly everyone gets in all of their vehicles with fuel trucks, with all the armored vehicles, with air defenses, and rolls into Rostov in one column and then goes north to Voronezh in another column, all at the same time clearly having maps of all the locations and a plan to surround those buildings that capture them. That just doesn't just happen in minutes, right? It takes uh, a long time to organize this. And again, in that Washington Post story by Alan Nakashima, uh, and Shane Harris, they talked about how the U.S. intelligence community had actually seen Prigozhin preparing for this f- for weeks. So it's not clear that there was ever actually a strike, or if there was a strike, maybe perhaps Shoigu got wind of the fact that Prigozhin was trying to su- do something and, and decided to strike first. Unclear what happened, doesn't actually matter. But at the end of the day, they were able to take Rostov, a city of a million people, by the way, without firing a shot, and then have another column march almost all the way to Moscow, literally missing it by 200 kilometers, about 120 miles or so, and then stop and, and reverse course. Now, now you, say, you say this was a mutiny and not a coup, right? Now, that's clearly how it started. Where things get a little bit dicey is when Putin comes out and says, everyone who's involved in this is going to be punished. This is, you know, they're, they're all traitors. This is treachery. It's a stab in the back. And, you know, at that point, you're thinking, okay, right, this is a coup at this point, when, when Prigozhin's response to this is to say the president's made the wrong decision. Yeah, so I think Prigozhin was shocked by Putin's response. I think he honestly thought that Putin would continue to stay out of this fight, as he had been for many, many months. I think it was a naive assumption. But it is remarkable for but that for 13 hours, as I mentioned, from when Prigozhin launched his mutiny, Putin was nowhere to be found. And I think that's in part what showed the whole weakness of the system, because in the absence of Putin, no one had any orders and had no idea what to do. And then ultimately, Putin comes out with a very angry speech. He was livid that he would be challenged like this and said that uh, Prigozhin, he didn't name him, of course, but basically said that Prigozhin is a traitor and that these traitors should be crushed. And then another remarkable thing happens. He, he makes a speech at uh, 10 in the morning Moscow time. And then for many hours later, you have very little activity. There was nothing in Rostov. You still had the Russian military there, by the way. They weren't imprisoned. They were still armed and you know intermingling with the Wagner guys. You had some attempted strikes at this uh, Wagner column of about 5,000 troops that was driving to Moscow but they managed to shoot down at least six helicopters. Not all six were on that drive to Moscow, but most of them were, and at least one command plane. And there was no attempts to otherwise stop him with any troops. Uh, There's a division that is based near Moscow. It didn't try to go and meet uh, Prigozhin on, on his way up north. So it was just remarkable how the Russian military basically decided to stay out of this fight, and so did Rosguardia and the National Guard beyond some performer attempts to stop him. And that's when I think the panic started setting in. In Moscow, there are allegations that maybe a bunch of people have fled the Kremlin. 
on, on that morning of the Saturday, maybe even Putin. There's some evidence for that because his plane, his personal plane, had taken off from Moscow. And basically, when you look at this, you, you say that this really shows the weakness of the entire system, that it's not that people were siding with Prigozhin because there was no evidence of that. No one was switching sides. No one was proclaiming their support for his cause, in part because he didn't have a political cause. He, he was basically fighting for Wagner and wanted to replace the minister of defense and, and the head of, of the general staff. That's not exactly a cause that you get a lot of people to rally behind. But they weren't coming out in support of Putin either. And only later did you see the statements from Kadyrov saying that he's going to support the president and send his fighters to fight Prigozhin and Rostov. And by the way, it took them a whole day to drive to Rostov, and then they never actually made it, and, and they never actually fought, fought but, Prigozhin. But, but. They did make a TikTok on a bridge. Of course. Uh, that's something that they're very good at. But it was sort of a column that never seems to arrive, right? Wagner makes rapid gains from southern Russia, almost getting to Moscow, and yet Chechen forces of Kadyrov can never reach Rostov. All of this adds up to this being a massive the emperor has no clothes moment for Putin, right? And I just want to go back to something you said a bit earlier, which is that, you know, there's been quite a lot of reporting that the US intelligence community knew this was going to happen or something was coming, uh, that uh, that Wagner had been moving bits and pieces around and they were get, obviously getting ready to do something. What I'm curious about, and, and you know, you and I spoke back in uh, April about this dossier center report where uh, hackers were able to get into uh, Evgeny Prigozhin's business interests, the, the computer networks that, that uh, serve his business interests. And they were all terribly insecure and the way that he was communicating was terribly insecure. His operational security was absolutely terrible. So it's no surprise to me that the US intelligence community would have some sort of some insight there. But something that does surprise me is that the FSB didn't seem to be on this. Like how, how did the Russian intelligence community not see this coming? if the US IC did? Well, the one thing that we found out from those dossier leaks is that he's very concerned about operational security. He goes through enormous efforts of using custom Android software on, on, on phones to try to he's, build their he's own- He's concerned with operational security, he's just not very good at it. Right, he attempts to do so. And yeah. the communications that were revealed also show that he was absolutely paranoid about the FSB. In fact, he gives polygraphs to every new recruit that goes in to work for, for his business empire. And one of the questions is, have you ever worked or are you working for the FSB? And those people are automatically blacklisted if, if they have any connections to the FSB. So clearly does not have any patrons there and treats them as rivals, I think in part because he was very concerned about some of the tax dodging uh, stuff that he was involved in and he was afraid that he would ultimately get prosecuted for that. But at any rate, it, it's clear that he values greatly trying to keep things away from the FSB. So perhaps he, has, he had managed to do so. Perhaps, perhaps he had told people in the Kremlin that are his protectors to get FSB off his back. And maybe that's why they weren't watching him. Who knows? But certainly they seem to, be caught, they seem to have been caught unawares by all of this. But, but let's talk about the implications of all of this, right? Because here he is driving to Moscow, and actually he was in Rostov the entire time, but his column was driving to Moscow. And it's clear now that while that drive was taking place, negotiations were ongoing. And there are some reports that Prigozhin had tried to call Putin himself. I think he was shocked that Putin actually went on TV and called him a traitor 
and he was trying to defuse the situation because that was not his goal to, to turn Putin against him. Putin refused to talk to him, unsurprisingly, and they picked an intermediary of Lukashenko. The reporting says that Prigozhin really wanted a high-level individual to speak to him, and since Putin refused, they figured out that maybe the president of Belarus was high-level enough for him to chat with. But Lukashenko really, I think, here is a messenger, and the idea that he's some sort of big peacemaker, conflict resolution professional, is a little bit of a of a joke. It's a but bit of a, it's a bit of a stretch. I mean, I will say too, just for the benefit of the audience, that you know, you predicted that there may be some kind of deal offered to Prigozhin to put a stop to this. And what was interesting is you made that prediction before Putin came out and called them traitors. And even after that, we did actually wind up seeing, well, it's been reported that we've seen a deal, but the details of this deal are clear as mud. Well, I'll tell you this. The reason I I thought there might be a deal is because I was incredulous looking at Prigozhin's forces driving through checkpoints, no one shooting at him, taking over the Southern Military District HQ, taking over the FSB, no opposition, Alexeyev and, and the Deputy Defense Minister sitting down with him and trying to negotiate. I saw this, I said, they want a deal. They don't want to fight him for whatever reason, right? And that's why I said, you know, these deals are not unprecedented in modern Russia. You've seen them happen before. Kadyrov is a great example. He had been a fighter against Putin and against Russia. He had joined the insurgents with his dad back in the 90s and then turned and became the president of Chechnya, right? So those things can happen. But then, of course, Putin comes out with this very livid speech, and I actually thought that he was in no mood to compromise. And he probably wasn't, but given that the Russian military, for whatever reason, was unable or unwilling to stop Wagner, he had no choice but to seek a compromise because at that point it was clear that Prigozhin might actually get to Moscow, might actually get to the Kremlin. And this is a scenario that I don't think either party wanted. I don't think Prigozhin wanted it because he had no plan for what to do next. And I don't think Putin obviously wanted it because he was afraid of what would happen. And that's when a deal emerged. But I don't think we know what the deal actually is. I put zero stock in Dmitry Peskov, who's so far been the only source that everyone jumps on for what this deal is all about. And according to Dmitry Peskov, here you have Wagner that has completely taken over Rostov and Southern Military District HQ and, and, and military airbase, by the way. Here they are 200 kilometers south of Moscow, and suddenly Prigozhin decides to dismantle Wagner, to flee to Belarus in exchange for what? In exchange for an amnesty? I mean, he's going to be in Belarus anyway. Why would he care about amnesty? The whole point, too, was that, you know, as you said earlier, Prigozhin started this whole thing in order to preserve Wagner, and now Putin's spokesperson comes out and says, well, we're going to dissolve Wagner and Prigozhin's going to leave the country. I mean, it seems a pretty pretty bad deal for Prigozhin based on what his original you know, wants were. Let's put it that way. Well, not only is it a bad deal, but it makes zero sense because Wagner never surrendered. They were never defeated. In fact, they were barely ever confronted on the battlefield. And you have these amazing videos of them just turning around and leaving Rostov as heroes because, uh, as we played in the clip uh, at the intro of the show, people were cheering them. There are pictures of people hugging them. These were not the people that are the losers. And I don't buy for a second what Peskov is saying. He might be correct, but this is a guy that's not only a notorious liar, 
he's never in the loop. He's literally the last person to know anything in the Kremlin. And of course, many of the things he has said in the past have been completely wrong. So I would wait and, he- and see what Prigozhin says, who has been MIA for the last almost 48 hours now. And I'm not so sure that Wagner is going to get dismantled and then he's going to go off into exile in Belarus. I think it might very well be the case that Wagner is going to go back into their camps, which is, by the way, what others have been saying, that they're on their way to their camps. Their camps are in Ukraine, in occupied Ukraine, and that Prigozhin is going to join them and perhaps continue fighting, perhaps planning his next move. But the last thing that he wants to do is go to Belarus and give up control of Wagner. So I'm not sure that that's actually how it's going to play out. It might, but I don't put a lot of stock in what Dmitry Peskov says. Now, you pointed out earlier that before the events of, uh, prior to the events of the last few days, Prigozhin wasn't really a political player. Like the idea that he was someone who could challenge Putin was a bit far-fetched. That's completely been turned on its head now, hasn't it? Literally, over the course of 72 hours, he has built a lot of popular support and massive name recognition in Russia. He's probably now one of the most well-known people in Russia, more well-known than even Alexei Navalny. And that was not the case before this weekend because some people knew Wagner, but very few people actually knew Prigozhin. He was never covered on television. In fact, Wagner was barely ever covered on television. That's all changed because the main networks, main Russian networks were covering this uprising, this mutiny, from day one, and Prigozhin's name was very prominently featured. I was very surprised to see TASS and RIA actually covering this straight. And what was also interesting is after Putin came out and did his angry speech, the tone of the coverage really changed. Like they weren't broadcasting the video of people cheering Wagner at that point. They had footage of, of Prigozhin being led away in a, in a car instead. You know, they didn't show the cheering videos anymore. But through the early phases... It was remarkably straight coverage from Russian news agencies. Yeah, and I think that's a sign that no one was giving orders, that the Kremlin was silent, and no one knew what to do. The military didn't know what to do. Resguardia didn't know what to do. The, the TV channels had no instructions. And in the absence of that, they just defaulted to either doing nothing or covering, covering it straight in the case of, of the TV networks. So one thing is, though, we keep sort of talking about this mutiny that kind of got out of hand, how... Prigozhin didn't, his plan wasn't really to take over the Kremlin uh, and, and install himself as president. But, you know, it seems like he's invested a lot of time and effort into crafting a bit of a political persona over the last nine months. And I really noticed this when he started making these statements against the, the Russian Ministry of Defense. It really looked like he was trying to create this image of the general who gets it, right? The one who understands the rank and file, the one who understands soldiers, their challenges, what they're facing. And I thought, gee, if you were really going to try to build up a constituency in Russia, that would be a good place to start. Do you think that was a deliberate strategy of his to, to try to build support among the rank and file? Uh, or do you think, you know, this is just a side effect of his angry ranting? I do think that he has long-term ambitions to build a political future for himself in Russia. And he's harbored that for a while. I think he's been very patient about this. I think he started, as you said, talking about the precarious situation that Russian soldiers are facing on the front, how they're not getting the support that they need from the Russian Ministry of Defense, 
how the rank and files are great, but the officers and generals are betraying them. And that helps you to build some level of constituency, but you need more than that. And that's, by the way, why I think he never actually wanted to take over the Kremlin because, okay, let's say Wagner gets to, to the Kremlin, arrests Putin, he installs himself as president, and then what? You don't have any political support across the country in the security services, even in the military, not yet, and, and certainly nowhere across the regions. So well, this is what I meant before about him not having the sort of patronage that would be needed to, to run the country. Exactly right. And now he is on the way to start building those patronages, right? Because now he's much more well-known. He's the person that confronted the authorities, that confronted the system, confronted Putin, and at least so far, things may change, but at least so far has gotten away with it. And that is remarkable. And everyone is in shock, not just the Kremlin, but the Russian population about what, what has just happened. How can he possibly get away with this? And if things continue as they have for the last 24 hours where there's no repercussions to him or Wagner, that is going to be very telling. And one of the things that I continue to watch very closely is the Wagner coverage and the actions that are being taken against them or not by the Russian government. And what happened was really interesting, right? When this mutiny began, the FSB started a criminal case against Prigozhin, against Wagner. There were raids in their offices, which apparently uncovered some interesting things, uh, multiple passports, some of them with Prigozhin's photo, but not his name, different names, and others in his name, but with different people's photos, a bunch of gold bricks, a bunch of bags with cash. But beyond that, they were taking down their recruitment posters across Russia. They were shutting down their websites in VContact, which is the Russian equivalent of Facebook. Yandex, which is the Russian version of Google, was filtering out a bunch of result, results for Wagner. So they were being disappeared effectively from the Russian internet and from the Russian political scene. In fact, even their merchandise that they sell online was taken down. But now, after this deal, it's all coming back. Not only is the case dropped, uh, in fact, FSB deleted on, on Telegram any mention of the raid and the gold bricks and the passports that they had posted. The merchandise is back on sale. So it seems like the Russian government is basically, the Russian system is saying, nothing, nothing happened. Let's move on. Let's go back to the status quo and pretend that nothing has just happened. Yeah, that seems maybe not so likely, right? And, uh, you know, I would ask you what you think is going to happen from here, but it seems like there are infinite possibilities here and it's going to be very difficult to know uh, what's going to happen. But one thing we can say for sure is that this is a massively destabilizing event. Putin has shown a massive weakness. We've always known that he doesn't like making hard decisions. It took him a long time to start the mobilization. And in fact, he didn't even announce it. He had Shoigu announce it because it was, he knew it was going to be so unpopular back last fall. For 13 hours, he was missing in action, did not respond to this mutiny, and only afterwards came out and, and gave that speech and then disappeared again. By the way, contrast this, I posted this on Twitter as well, to Lukashenko's response to the popular protests against him in 2020 in Belarus, when there was a people's uprising because he had rigged the elections and he had unleashed his security forces, unleashed his military, but also came out himself with a, with a gun. Now he was protected by his forces. He was nowhere near danger, but nevertheless, 
try to show at least, even if it was staged, that he was leading from the front. Putin didn't even do that, right? Lukashenko, in fact, showed more courage here than Putin ever did. And, and by the way, I'm certainly no fan of Lukashenko and not trying to make him into a nice guy here by any means. But it's very telling. And the fact, again, that Putin was confronted by someone who he himself said is a traitor, and now he's allowing that traitor to leave with all of his forces intact and perhaps even stay in Ukraine with his Wagner group. Let's see if that actually happens, but I wouldn't put money against it right now. And all of the criticism of Wagner is, is going back into reverse where you've had various political leaders come out today and talk about how Wagner did nothing wrong. You know, they, they, they didn't hurt anyone, as uh, one former general and deputy defense minister said. I don't, know, I don't know about the pilots of those six aircraft that were shot down uh, would feel about that. Yeah, no, no one has heard except the 13 pilots that died in those helos and fixed-wing aircraft that they shot down. Just a remarkable statement, and one that I think pe- people would not be saying if they thought there would be repercussions to them. And... The main weakness to Putin right now is not that someone is going to pop behind him and shoot him in the back or, you know, take over, but that he's going to become increasingly irrelevant and that people all across the country, whether it's in the security services, where it's various governors in the regions and others, are going to be saying, wait a second, if Prigozhin can get away with a mutiny, what can we get away with? Do we need to Mm -hmm. ask Mother May I of the Kremlin every time we want to do something that enriches ourselves or increases our power or doing something within our local region that's of interest? Our fiefdoms are our own sort of Exactly, exactly. So central power that has been the hallmark of the Putin presidency when he came into power in 1999, the first thing that he wanted to do is build this vertical of power, as he called it, to make sure that he controlled this vast country that is notoriously difficult to control. He uh, got rid of the elections of governors. He started appointing them. He made sure that they are all beholden to him, that they would all get money from the central government in Moscow, and as a result, would be loyal to him. But what this incident demonstrated is that the loyalty does not run deep. And now, I think many people are looking at him as this old man that's out of touch, that is MIA, when major events happen, and that they could get away with something. And this testing of the system that we might see going forward by various players that are involved in it are going to undermine Putin's power even more in the months and potentially years ahead if he survives that long. Yeah. Uh, So let's talk about uh, possible impacts on the war, right? Because that's something that a lot of people have been really concerned with, which is, you know, does any of this have any sort of um, impact on the on the Ukraine war? I'm guessing the impact is 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 not really significant, at least at this point. Yeah, I think in the near term, there won't be an impact. It it is telling that the first thing that Prigozhin did when he took over the Southern Military District HQ is to make a video saying that he's allowing people to continue working prosecute the war, give orders, provide supplies, that he does not want to interfere with the war operations in Ukraine. By the way, for anyone who was cheering this on, thinking that Prigozhin was going to be the guy to end this war, I have news for you. This is a guy that literally runs a private military company. War is his business. He is as pro-war as you can imagine. And this this idea that he was going to, even if he somehow captured power, which is not what he wanted, that he would immediately end the war, I I think uh, is is pure speculation. But 
you know, at least for now, the Ukrainians, of course, are continuing their counteroffensives and the Russians are managing to hold positions. We'll see what effect this has in the medium to long term, because anytime you have destabilization in the system and the weakening of central powers, that's going to have ramifications down the road. How, what those might be is very difficult to predict. But I'll tell you one thing that people should keep in mind is that there was probably never more destabilizing year in modern Russian history than 1917, when you had two revolutions take place in Russia. Uh, the first one that overthrew the Tsar with a provisional government and then the Bolshevik Revolution some months later. And even though you had these major destabilizing events, the Russian military continued to participate in World War I, continued fighting the Germans, not well, but nevertheless, th there was no ending of that war until the Bolsheviks finally came to power and negotiated a truce with the Germans. So this idea that wars would end just because there is a coup or destabilizing events in Russia is really not supported by historical events. Sure, sure. But Prigozhin has said some pretty remarkable things about the war, that this is really just glory hunting on behalf of uh, a handful of generals and elites in Russia. So he certainly doesn't seem to be a fan of it. I'm just wondering if uh, someone like Evgeny Prigozhin is, would be more keen to send his guys back to Africa where they can cut deals with uh, corrupt African governments to put down local insurgencies and collect a share of oil revenue, which is something that they do in various places. Do you think it's completely beyond the realm of possibilities that Prigozhin might want Russia out of Ukraine? Because of all the people who could end it, like the only person who comes to mind is him because he does have that reputation as someone who's been on the front line. And he has the credibility to say, you know what, this isn't worth it. We're done here. Uh, let's go. I mean, I know that this is, is probably fantasy, but I, I, I just would be careful of dismissing it so completely as a possibility. Or am I just, is this what they, they call uh, copium, Dimitri? Well, look, you, you can't rule anything out. And I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't, do that, wouldn't want to do that. Who knows what the future holds? But I'll tell you this. Prigozhin has said a lot of things about this war. He has said that it, this war is existential for Russia, that we need total mobilization, that this, is, this war needs to be fought more aggressively, not less. And you're right. When you're referencing his most recent statements, when he, I think, went a little too far, frankly, and said that uh, Shoigu and, and Gerasimov launched this war on a fal false pretense, I think what he was doing is simply increasing his criticism of Gerasimov and Shoigu, which was already quite outrageous, and uh, also potentially floating a balloon for Putin to grab in case he wanted to potentially wind down this war or blame someone for its failures, that he could basically grab onto this and say, see, it wasn't me who launched this war, it was Gerasimov and Shoigu that misled me and created this false pretense but of course, Putin didn't bite, and this all went in the direction we, we know this resulted in. So I, I don't put too much value in, into his statements on this war. I don't think he's that anti-war, and, and certainly he has massacred a lot of Ukrainians, killed a lot of POWs. This is not a nice guy by any stretch of the imagination. And as I mentioned, war is his business, and he's making a lot of money on this war. Yes, Africa was lucrative, but trust me, this is even more lucrative. The amount of money that he's skimming and the weapons that he's getting off this war are just unimaginable. So what are we watching for in the next week? 
near term, what are the things we should be looking out for? What sort of events could could escalate this again? Like, because I, I just have no idea. It's just such an unprecedented situation. Well, the key is what what actually happens to Prigozhin. He has put out a statement through his press office saying that he does not have communications right now, which is interesting, but that he's well and and he's going to put out a statement soon enough. So I'll be watching for that. Most important thing is where is he going to reappear? Is he actually going to be in Belarus? Because if he's not going to be in Belarus, that means that everything else that Peskov has said about this deal is also false. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what his plans are and what is going to happen to Wagner. Here we are, we're recording this on Sunday, June 25th. July 1st deadline is still looming. The order has not yet been rescinded for private military companies to be disintegrated and people to uh, be forced to sign contracts with MOD. We'll see if anyone from Wagner actually does that. And if Wagner remains a potent force that's armed to the teeth, Prigozhin's power is only gonna grow. Again, doesn't mean that he's gonna go back and march on Moscow, but I don't rule out him creating a political party and becoming a major powerful politician in Russia with some support across the military, across, you know, obviously the people that have been involved in Wagner as well. So that will be the key moment to watch in the coming days. Beyond that, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Putin's power. And it's not that, again, that I think that there's an eminent coup, but are people going to start ignoring him more and more? Is there going to be more of a warlord warlordism situation across the different regions in Russia where they're going to run their own fiefdoms? Kadyrov already does that in Chechnya. Are more governors going to do that? and ignore Moscow. And that, of course, is, is a major problem, not just for Putin, but for Russia, because it is a massive country spanning 11 time zones, and controlling it is incredibly difficult. There are a lot of nationalities in, in the country as well. So you could have potential for conflicts and, and even civil wars because of that. When, whenever central power is weak in Russia, civil war becomes possible. I didn't think that this was likely until this weekend. But now that Putin has demonstrated how weak he is, how little support he's got across the military and National Guard and interior troops, he still has support of the FSB, but that's not enough to stop an armed insurrection. It's enough to you know, stop someone like Navalny from trying to take over and to rig elections, but not enough to stop you know, highly capable 25,000 sledgehammer-wielding maniacs who are battle-hardened. Not just sledgehammer wielding, right? These guys are armed to the teeth with the best of Russian weapons. Yeah. They were running Pantsir air defense systems, literally the most modern air defense systems that Ukrainians don't have because they were built in 20, 2008 and, and fielded just in the last uh, decade or so. I mean, yeah, Rosgvardia Ros is set up for dealing with, you know, they're like a public order and riot squad. You know, they've got some MRAPs and whatever, but they are not set up to deal with something like Wagner. That's right. That's right. So this is a major problem that Putin is facing. And look, he's also not acting like the guy that wants to or is capable of holding on to power in a time like this. He's not acting like Lukashenko, showing that he's a strong man, that he's going to be leading his men from the front and crushing any protests. There's no repercussions right now to not just Wagner itself, but any of the military and Rosguardia people that have either not stopped Wagner or decided to just stand aside and do nothing. There's, there's no, uh, what's known in Russia, Zachisky, cleaning up of all those people. We can add more metaphors. He's, uh, the emperor has no clothes and he's asleep at the wheel. 
exactly. <laughs> now, this might still happen. We might wake up tomorrow and there's major crackdowns and arrests across the military, Ross Guardia, Wagner. Yeah, you but know. I mean, but again, there's there's risk in that, right? Like, do you really want to add more volatility to the situation, right? Like, it's got to be a dilemma for Putin. Well, it's clearly he can't make a decision. There's risks of both, of action and inaction, and he can't decide, and the longer he dithers, the worse it gets for him. Well, Dmitry Alperovich, thank you very much for letting me host this edition of Geopolitics Decanted. Uh, it's been wonderful to chat to you about all of this uh, very insightful stuff, and I hope we'll do it again one day. Cheers. Absolutely. Thanks so much, pa Patrick, and looking forward to having you on next time. Yeah.